This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. On April 8th, 2020, Soccer America, the Bible of American soccer, began its 50th year of publishing. Well, I don't remember exactly when I started reading SA. I, I know it was in the late 80s, and I know for many listening like myself, it's been an instru instrumental piece in, in, in following the game. So I want to celebrate. So I've brought uh, two guys on who are quite familiar to uh, those that uh, read Soccer America, Mike Wataya, executive editor, and Paul Kennedy, editor-in-chief, also a media award recipient uh, in the National Hall of Fame. So guys, uh, welcome. Um, I'm thrilled to have you both on here and, and, and spend this time to uh, just go over the history of it and what we've learned and... Um, well, Paul, I'll start with you. I mean, I, I, I want to tell a little bit of the story of how it was created. I know it was Clay Burling. I know it was 1971. And I know there was a basement where it all started. But can you uh, fill in some of the blanks there? Sure. And I can start by saying I'm looking out my window right now and I can see see the church across the street where that basement was. Uh, Clay was a member of the Albany Methodist Church here in Albany, California. It's right across the street from my house. And when he decided to start Soccer America, he needed a place with some room to do it. And the basement, which was used for, you know, receptions and church functions, had a bunch of uh, coffee tables. So he would lay out the pages. And that's how he started the magazine in 1871. He had got, gotten the soccer bug in the late 60s when the Oakland Clippers played here in the NESL. And he told, tells a story of that he had six kids who... Uh, um, so he needed to find a way to uh, afford to, to uh, uh, take he and his wife and his six kids to some entertainment and soccer were, and the Clippers was affordable and he sort of got hooked on it. And so by the early 70s, he had, even though the Clippers had now uh, gone away, he became involved in um, local soccer and started what was called Soccer West. But it very quickly became Soccer America because the interest in the game was obviously across the country. And it was a hodgepodge of information of stuff that he had collected that people would send in. So it was, it was uh, you know, really uh, something that, uh, it, it was not a formal magazine in terms of writers, but it was people who were inter inter interested in the game. And as I say, until it's, it's most important, um, aspect was the fact that it gave uh, a connection to everybody involved in the game working in different parts of the country who didn't realize that there are other people in other parts of the country doing the same thing and then when they would read stories in soccer america about some you know youth team in dallas or uh you know nina wisconsin you know these these weird towns where soccer america stories would pop up when i started reading it in 1873 it was because uh, everyone saw that was going on and it gave them the instrument you know uh inspiration to continue and you know later on a lot of it was people coming back to clay when he was thinking of giving up because it was too hard too much work too much money um you know he was a, a state farm insurance agent you know pretty well off but not rich and uh it was tough but you know people would come back to him and say you know you can't uh stop because of what you mean to us and so it was sort of that snowball effect of, of that got us going and kept us going Wow. So is it safe to assume, Paul, that your proximity to uh, where this all began kind of led to you being part of it? Or how did, how did that connection come about? Um, 
I started reading Soccer American in 73. I, you know, went to Colgate University, upstate New York, graduated from Colgate, um, started writing for Soccer American in 1974. In 1978, I started working for France football. And so I became very knowledgeable about the sport. At the same time, I, was, I went to uh, uh, law school. And so in uh, 19, um, but all along I had this bug for soccer like all of us have. And in 1985, I decided to, or Lynn Burley Manuel, who was the publisher for many years, called me up and asked me if I wanted to come to California to become the editor. And uh, at the time our office were in Berkeley and uh, um, when we started to grow, we moved probably about two or three blocks from here, from my house here in Albany. And so when it came time to look for a house, I wanted to find something near our offices so I could walk in. You know, for many years, I was able to walk and we could get by with one car. And just so happened that it was next to where Clay was. And, you know, when we bought the house, Clay came over. He went through the basement and looked at everything, all the fittings, you know, here in California. You know, the big issue is because of earthquakes is the foundation. So, you know, as an uh, insurance agent, he knew all that stuff. And he uh, <laughs> and, and even in later years, my, my wife at Soccer America. Um, and after she, we got married and she left, she worked for Clay for a number of years in his, as the receptionist in his office. So it was always for us sort of a family, you know, there was a family aspect to it that, you know, was very re rewarding. All right. Well, that's Paul Kennedy. We got Mike Wataya here too. So Mike, when did you start getting involved, uh, in writing and, uh, what year was that for you? That would have been 1983. I, had, I was very, very lucky that um, I was going to school at UC Berkeley, which is where Soccer America was based. Um, I started reading Soccer America in 1970, about 1974, because my family, originally from Germany, had moved from then to Dallas, moved to Hawaii, and my dad subscribed so we could uh, stay in touch with the soccer and then in the country and internationally, too. Um, I was uh, a fresh, uh, a sophomore at Cal. Uh, I was even on the soccer team and covering the, while I was on the team, I was covering it for the Daily Californian because I thought I was going to get cut, but I ended up making the team. And um, back then we used a large amount of uh, freelance writers to, to cover soccer all over. And they saw my byline in the Daily Californian, started covering Cal for uh, Soccer America, and then got an internship that summer. So um, that would have, that means that I've been at Soccer America. I think if my math is right, uh, 38 years, that's the only job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you mentioned the, the college side of things, and that's something that stands out to me. I'm being involved in the collegiate game for as long as I have is that, uh, one thing Soccer America always provided was, um, um, real, really strong coverage of the college game. In fact, you had, Maybe you guys were the original collegiate rankings. I don't even know on D1. I know you had your your uh, Soccer America top 20 or then top 25. How long, how far back does that date? Um, you know, we had coverage back to the, you know, the first first days. Uh, recently, we, we published some issues from uh, 1971. And then there was uh, a game in which uh, San Francisco played UCLA. And on that freshman team for UCLA was, uh, a guy by the name of Siegfried Schmidt, who, mm. um, you know, was uh, the later the U.S. UCLA coach and, and uh, uh, one of, you know, one of the greatest coaches in American soccer history. And I think Soccer America, because of its college coverage, 
um, you know, really grew. Um, you know, it meant that, you know, if, if you were um, a kid in college, a lot of the kids in college, their parents would get them a subscription in the dormitory, the parents would get them. So we, you know, for us, it was great because we would get two subscriptions out of one kid. And, uh, um, and we would do things like the college preview where, you know, when we started growing really in the mid 80s, this was after the NESL died, is that's when soccer really took off and it was college soccer that was the, uh, you know, the, the, what was really the driver of this. And, you know, so much of the game took off then when um, the kids from about the mid 70s to the mid 80s were the first sort of class of kids who went and grew up through high school, now we're in college and we're relatively good enough. And you look at the national teams that we started covering a few years later and they were all college kids. You know, John Harks at Virginia, John Stolmeyer at Indiana, um, you know, Tab Ramos at NC State, you know, then down the road to what you'd be more familiar with, say, was Alexi Lalas at Rutgers. These were all, um, uh, it was, you know, these, these were all college kids because that's the only, that was the only thing that was, was going at the time except for indoor soccer, which was there, but was really not, a, not going anywhere. The, the one thing I wanted to ask, because I couldn't remember, is how often did the publication actually come out? What was the most frequent that we would get? Was it once a week? Was it bi-weekly? I, I can't remember. It was a weekly, yeah. Soccer America was a weekly. Um, and the when I was when I first covered it, and I, I mentioned the little story about me still being on the team, we played. I wasn't. I didn't get it on the field very often. Um, and Cal played UCLA. We played against Bruce Arena, and we played against Siggy Schmidt. And after the game, I would take a put on a regular jacket so it didn't look like I was a player <laughs> and uh, <laughs> interviews. And, and, and then when I became a, when I was hired full time, Paul Kennedy uh, would make sure that we, that, that, that we would cover the final fours and, and I would go to almost every, you know, final four starting in the late eighties, um, you know, meeting people like Jerry Yeagley going to the final four that had uh, Casey Keller, Jurgen Summer, Shocker, he slept on the same, you know, at the same tournament. Um, what, wait, that, let, me interrupt, let, let me ask you this. Did you go to the final four in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey in 1989 when it was like 20 below windchill factor? Were you at that one? I remember when the game finally ended and we had to get out, get outside of the, the, the press box to walk to the, where the press conference was. And I saw camera ass right after I was, sh I, I was shivering. I, I, it was hard to walk that far. It was crazy cold. <laughs> well, I was then, sitting on the concrete uh, steps of uh, Rutgers stadium to watch uh, what, Santa Clara, Virginia. Right. Right. And then, so that was Steve Sampson against Bruce arena. And it ended in a tie because they just couldn't go on anymore. And <laughs> Steve Sampson came out first and said, uh, we were ranked number one going into the game. So we consider ourselves the champions. You <laughs> 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 imagine how Bruce took that. But, you know, that was incredible. You, you had guys like Jeff Beicher and Paul Bravo on the Santa Clara team. And then you had uh, Bruce, uh, Tony Miola, Jeff Agus. Um, you know, and then so we were covering the college game when it was producing, uh, you know, the players and coaches that would be an integral part of the success and growth of the game at the at the other levels. Mike Wataya and uh, Paul Kennedy from Soccer America all year celebrating uh, the 50th anniversary uh, of the publication, which is so Paul is is it available at all in magazine or paper format or it's all online now? It's online in uh, 
2017, we decided to uh, eliminate the magazine. It was a lot of work for even for which is four four times a year, um, and we went um, on a paywall in which now to get South America you have to pay for it. But what it means is that uh, it's now we put out South America Daily every day. Um, so, you know, with probably eight or 10 stories each day that Mike and I and a couple other people will write. And so in effect, we're doing now, um, we come out every day, whereas before we were weekly. So right. we're sent times, you know, seven times the frequency. And back in our heyday, we had like seven full-time writers, that, uh, seven full-time editors, plus a staff of writers. And now it's two of us plus I don't know how you guys do it. I know you have contributors. You know, I, I've, I've seen the uh, some of the contributions. We all see that. But to wake up every morning. So you guys are probably here on the East Coast and I'm an early riser. So I'm getting up. I'm probably when I'm getting up and I open up my email and there it is in the inbox, probably just a couple of minutes prior. You guys are just getting to bed, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, uh, I would say uh, for the last couple of years, uh, for me, who is interested in politics, I would I would go to sleep. I, I would finish or get ready to start winding down about three o'clock here, which is six o'clock in the morning when Morning Joe, you know, would come on MSNBC. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, so for the East Coast, it's, it's people getting up. And for me, it was still up at night. And, uh, you know, I try to uh, limit that. I'm, you know, I just had my birthday last week where I turned uh, 66. So it's a lot of work and it's, you know, it's incredibly hard work. So I'm not sure how much longer I can do it, but, um, it shows how much, you know, I have enjoyed what we've done and, and, and feel, you know, uh, very satisfied about, you know, the little that we've been able to contribute to the growth of the game. So it's something that um, I'm, you know, I'm willing to do, even though it's, uh, as I said, you know, work, you know, working late hours is hard. Well, Mike just sent me a text while you said all that. And, and he said, you're not leaving before me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, uh, Glenn, real quick, the, um, you know, in the beginning, um, our weekly magazine was pretty much the only way people could get news um, across the country. And like every other media situation, the United States came to a point where people could get information on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which, which was, which in a you know in a positive way, also changed the way that that, that we approached the sport. Which was, you know, you basically had to had to cover it constantly and we, and we also took on the challenge that um a lot of you know so many people in this country are involved with the game at more than one level you know you can be a ref and a player or coach and and, and that and that's always been something that we've really striven to do which is cover the youth game the, the the college game the international game and then of course the national teams and then you know the pro leagues when i started there it was in between the pro leagues so that was interesting and then we had the World Cup in, in 94 and then the MLS. Um, you know, it's an incredible history when we go through our back issues just to see how the game grew. And um, I think sometimes people uh, who see how huge it is now, um, it wasn't that long ago where, um, you know, soccer was really just trying to make its way, uh, you know, into the mainstream. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Soccer America with editors uh, Mike Wataya and Paul Kennedy. And Paul, I understand you met your wife while working at Soccer America. She worked in our customer service and we would start, and this is the early 90s, and we would get bombarded with all these questions where people would call us up and 
you know, they'd be in a bar somewhere and they'd have this dispute and they want to talk to an editor to answer some trivia question or they want to know when some game was in. And Lynn Burling, who was, you know, the publisher, was getting upset about all the editor's time was being spent taking these phone calls. So um, my wife, Shirley, who uh, was in charge, you know, of the uh, uh, answering the phones, uh, we set up a system where we gave her like a, a, a list of, of games. We gave her a list of, uh, you know, s- certain soccer facts so that she could answer a lot of questions. And then we set up a policy where she would say, well, an editor is not available right now, but if you call back in 24 hours, I'll try to get an answer for you. And the first thing was that quickly uh, got rid of a lot of questions because people weren't going to bother to call back in 24 like, hours. What kind, of, what kind of questions and arguments? This is interesting. You mean like, like, you know, who won an FA Cup or, you know, when, you know, who, you know, which, when national team players were in a game or, you know, who was a coach at such, such college, things like that. And again, because, you know, you know, I've always had a great um, uh, memory for stuff. I can answer most of these questions. And so what happened was, is that uh, we came up with a system where I would come up and, and talk to Shirley, um, you know, at four o'clock every afternoon. And if she had questions, I would, you know, I would help her answer the questions. And, uh, but, you know, quickly, you know, after, after about a month or so of answering these questions and, and talking with her every day, um, uh, she told me that she, she had uh, gotten a car uh, um, and didn't have, but had a stick shift and she didn't know how to drive it. So she asked me to help her um, learn to drive. And sure enough, you know, that, you know, after a couple of weeks, that it led to uh, a romance and we got married. But, but it was all because of this, this soccer trivia part. That is, that is wild. What, what kind of contact do you get now, Mike, from uh, the general public or, you know, is it email? Is it uh, just in the, uh, in the reactions to the articles? You know, you give, you have a comment section, by the way, who's Frank Schoon, S C H O O N. If anybody reads the, uh, the daily soccer America that's available, uh, he comments on more of your articles than anybody, but who is he? I don't know. Um, (laughs) you know, it's all of the above as far as getting feedback. One of the huge changes in media of course is that in the old days you wrote an article and and you really didn't know what the reception was like until maybe you got a letter to the editor or you ran into somebody and and now you 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 get a a reaction almost immediately whether it's on social media um whether people retweet uh, your article you know my email is very easy to find so people would uh so in a way it's um you know it, it it's it's very interesting, very rewarding to um, get people's opinions so quickly. And, um, you know, that's just, uh, you know, sometimes obviously on the, on social media, you've got, um, you know, not all of it is, 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 is not all the reactions I think are, are, are civilized, but um, in, in general, it's, it's, right. I think a pretty, uh, you know, interesting phenomenon in, in journalism that it's become, you know, there's so much more, you know, feedback uh, and, and reaction to things. And, and, and I think of a lot of positive things where if you write about, uh, say, a program that's doing something good and, and it popularizes that and, 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 you know, helps those people do something good. No, well, I know for this show um, that I host each week, uh, I've certainly gleaned ideas from, uh, from some of those positive stories uh, that you uh, both have written. Mike Wataya and uh, Paul Kennedy with us. 
here, uh, the uh, Soccer America 50th anniversary. We're celebrating it here on the Coaching Academy. And do you, do you guys miss, I, I know we talk about the positive aspects. Now you're out there on a daily basis. Um, the, the feedback is immediate. Um, you're reaching, you know, far more people potentially. Uh, but do you miss holding the newspaper in your hand and, and when it came out, you know, once a week and there's a, there's a bit of um, anticipation, you know, when it, when it, when it's like that, as opposed to now, we just, we know we're going to wake up and see it every day. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, what, what I would say is this, is that because we had worked on, you know, when, by the time we got the press on a Tuesday night, which was our deadline day um, and had, you know, written the stories, edited the stories, reread the stories, proved it one last time, signed off on the pages, say for myself, who was the editor. Um, you know, I had, you know, seen every story three or four times, but at the same time, for me, the, the satisfaction was not just, um, you know, in the office for all the people there who worked there who weren't involved, is, is to watch people look at and get a magazine and look at them read it. Or things like, to me, the greatest satisfaction was, they say, to go to an event where someone would pick up a Soccer America, read it, and see their reaction, their facial reaction, uh-huh. and also to see what you know, what stories that they would read. And to me, it always would uh, sort of show the you know the character and interest of the people by by what 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 stories they they would read. You know, and to me, the classic example of that was someone like uh, Bob Bradley, who was such a you know a consummate soccer guy, and when he would read Soccer America. He would start in the back, which had the most obscure stuff, looking for things like in the A-League and USL and, you know, names for things that for him, you know, he was always like looking for, you know, uh, you know, something new um, to come up so that, you know, that was to me was the greatest fact was was seeing people read. You know, I I, I just want to retrace some of the things that um, you guys have been able to uh, to cover and. The North American Soccer League is first. So, Mike, I know you said you kind of joined a full-time in 83, and that's really uh, the beginning of the end of the NASL, you know, right around that time. But for me here in the metropolitan area of New York and New Jersey, Giants Stadium, I mean, we had the Cosmos. And that's really, you know, that's a big reason why I became more passionate about the sport and wanted to find out more was the fact that the Cosmos were here in my backyard and these uh, incredible players were coming on board. No, when I, when I lived in Dallas, we had the Dallas Tornado, Ron Newman and Roy Turner and yeah. Bobby Moffitt and Kenny Cooper and Dick Hall and those guys. So um, we had visited my grandparents in Germany in 1970 when I was six and watched the World Cup. And I was went nuts about soccer. I, we came back and my dad looked all over for soccer and found it in North Dallas in, in 74 and 75. And then it spread within a year to, to where I lived in Oak Cliff and it became huge. And, and we went to every single uh, Dallas tornado game. When we moved to Hawaii, we had team Hawaii for a year. Um, Pele and the Cosmos came and, you know, I was probably 12 and got to play in a pregame with um you know, before the Cosmos game. So the NASL was, you know, I think everybody who's my age, um, you know, was was extremely affected by it. One thing I remember, and I was very lucky because uh, in 1989, Paul sent me to cover the U-20 World Cup in, in Saudi Arabia. In 1990, I went to the World Cup 
in Italy, and I was with Paul Gardner, our columnist, and Paul had covered uh, the NASL from the get-go and uh, living in New York uh, when Beckenbauer got there and Pele got there. And so Germany beat Italy in the, it, it, in the, in the World Cup final. And during the press conference, uh, Paul Gardner raises his hand, gets picked on and asks a question. And the first thing Franz Beckenbauer says is, hello, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that happened uh, was the U.S qualified for the world cup that year and it had been such a long haul what was the coverage like leading up to that i mean that's certainly one of the more seminal moments in u.s men's history for soccer america that was probably the biggest thing that ever happened to us because for the first time it allowed all our readers to be interested in a single topic um you know i mean we had a lot of people interested in various things but soccer was always a had always these niches it was outdoor indoor men women college pro international, American, uh, you, know, you, you, you know, a lot of people were from a different country that they were primarily interested in, but, but having the national team be successful was really big. And a couple of things about it that I can remember was in 1989 qualifying, we introduced for the first time uh, player ratings, you know, which were really common in obviously in, you know, the, 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 the European press in Germany and France and Italy with a different scale of ratings but it had never been done there before. And so we introduced that and that was really important. And just, just having, you know, the opportunity to cover a whole qualifying campaign where it was the first time soccer America was big enough and we had a big enough staff and, and enough support to go to the games was, you know, really cool. I mean, I, you know, I'd never been to Central America before the opening game against Costa Rica. And, you know, so for all of us, it was an eye opener and uh, you know, what I remember was the U.S. Trinidad game in 89, where what people don't realize was soccer was, was so small at the time that the game wasn't live. It was on tape delay. So it was an hour tape delay. I was at the office before I went to some of one of our editors' house to watch the game. And someone called and told me that Paul Caligiuri had scored, scored um, in the first half. So I knew going to this party that the U.S. was ahead when nothing at halftime. I didn't know what was going to happen in the second half. Wow. So but, somewhat, somewhat suspenseful for you still. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, but I knew there was going that things were, were, you know, were looking pretty good. Um, but the most amazing thing was is that we uh, did a commercial for the game. And it probably showed it three or four times. It was the first you know, TV commercial we'd ever done. And you know, there weren't a lot of ads on the broadcast, so we got you know, good you know, uh, uh, airtime. And, you know, we had no idea, you know, how it was going to perform. It, you know, you'd call up 800 number and they would take your order and blah, blah, blah. And we come in the next day and, and literally we had 1,500 new subscriptions, which for us, considering we only had 10,000 to begin with, meant that overnight we had grown 15%. Wow. And uh, it just showed that, you know, how big, how, you know, big a game was. And, and, and in recent years, I've met people who told me that they subscribed to Soccer America off that ad, which was pretty amazing. You know, the, the national team was the unifying force in our coverage that, uh, that we needed and, and, you know, gave us, gave us sort of a, a, a single team to, for everyone to root for. The, the player rate. The player ratings, interesting. So, uh, so Mike, uh, it's rare I see a rating over six or seven. You're a tough grader there, Wataya. Uh, yeah, it's well. Usually, you kind of start with a five, and then and then tick up and tick down. Um, obviously, it's it's subjective, and um, 
I think last game I, I was pretty generous because uh, it's tough too. Cause you, you do, how much do you uh, yeah, take into account the opponent and, and all of that? But um, what did Ferrari get? I gave him a nine. Um, oh, wow. You know, which is rare, but uh, you know, he was involved in five of the goals and. No, I mean, I, I, I can't, and Mike probably has a better memory than I do, but I, I don't remember two or three tens we've ever given in whenever one of the editors wants to give a 10, we have to have an emergency meeting to, uh, to, uh, to, to justify it. Yeah. Who, well, who were the, who was the Nadia Coleman each of uh, soccer America ratings? Come on. Carly Lloyd may have gotten a 10 in the final of the 2015 women's world. Cup. Wow. That must've been I mean, the direct influence of her collegiate coach. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> yes. No. Well, we did that without, with uh, objectively, but the, the performance <laughs> may have been influenced by her coach. Uh, um, I believe Tony Miol, when the U.S. beat England, which I believe, was it 93? 93 uh, U.S. Cup. Yeah. We had been a Tony Miol at 10. We only gave Tim Howard a nine against Belgium because, you know, lost. I, we got criticized for that. But, you know, they lost and he did give up two goals. And I figured <laughs> perfect, perfect would be not giving up any goals. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay with a nine in that game. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the kick save became, uh, became something that the goalkeeper started to train after that. That's one thing I remember. Mike Wataya, Paul Kennedy, Soccer America. Hey, guys, one of the things as we, uh, we, we look at the changes over the years, one of the things that stands out to me is the ability to watch the game. When Soccer America was born, I mean, what I don't know what any of us were watching. I I only I went to UHF and got RAI to watch uh, you know Italian soccer on a Sunday morning. But I mean, beyond that, there wasn't a, a whole lot there. And um, it was it was it was hard. And and the, the story I'll tell you is uh, in nineteen by nineteen eighty eight eighty nine, our staff started to grow, and a little more TV soccer was available. But you had to have a, a big dish satellite which usually was only at bars. Uh, the European Cup was on Wednesdays, which also happened to be the day after we'd gone to press. So we had a little bit more time. And about uh, a couple blocks from here was a dive bar called Little Alaska. And we would go in there in the afternoon and watch the European uh, Cup games. What was and that, live live via satellite? It was yeah, closed yeah, circuit? Yeah, so, so it would have been closed you know, circuit? Yeah. just you like it find is. find a Mexican yeah. satellite? Off of Televisa. And for us, you know, here it was 12, so the game would finish two or three. And, and, and since we were at a bar, you know, we, you know, the younger editors would all have a couple of drinks and we would all stumble back to work about four o'clock in the afternoon. And, and Lynn recognized that that was not a long-term uh, healthy situation for her staff. So <laughs> lo and behold, she and Clay decided to get our own satellite. And sure enough, uh, by the 1990 World Cup, we had – in our new offices, which we had moved into, uh, this big satellite, which became now the meeting ground for everybody in our uh, East Bay who were interested in soccer. So that was always cool that we would have people come by and you know come you know w- watch games and you know people like Lyle Yorks, who's now a very well-known agent of of many of the big national team players. He was a young coach, and he would always come by at lunch and uh, and and watch the games with us. Wow, what a clever way to uh, to get Lynn and Clay to purchase the uh, the outfit by uh, going down the street. We were, we were all we were all shocked at, at Clay's decision to spend that money. It was like you know I bet you fifteen hundred bucks. You we know? also had the subscription to a Canadian station, I believe it was TSN, I, and I believe the statute of limitation is over now. But 
you had to like call some shady guy and then he told you to he was going to connect you to whoever like made it live and said okay don't tell them where you're located if they asked just say you're in Canada and then we would get a subscription to so TSN we had uh, German shortwave Deutsche Welle would have a weekly uh, Bundesliga highlights and so you know we did whatever we could to see you know to see games and um yeah, no, it's incredible when you think about that in the United States now. I think we could, we have access to more games than I think in any country. You can talk to someone in England and Germany, and they will, they'll tell you they don't have access to as many games as we do. And, and to me, one of uh, the more important features of, uh, of Soccer America in uh, my inbox is soccer on TV. I share it with my club team each week. We ask our players to watch uh, one game a week. Sometimes I'll assign it. That's part of the biblical nature of Soccer America now is that you have all these TV listings. Unfortunately, many of them are paywalls now, but it is what it is. Like, I don't mind paying for Soccer America or a newspaper online because we always bought the paper anyway. And I think, and, and everybody should, if anybody listening does not have a subscription to Soccer America online, you're going to do it after this broadcast or you can't listen to me anymore. But <laughs> the... Uh, because you guys, I mean, it's so cheap too. What is it a month? It's usually it's four nine four ninety nine a month, but we have a uh, ninety nine cent introductory offer for the first month. All these games are on TV. It's 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 really remarkable, and it really does help my, set my schedule for the week. I got to tell you. And Glenn, I'll tell you one more story. Is that in uh, in the eighties? That wasn't soccer on TV. We we would struggle ourselves to find our information, and when we got our satellite one of the big issues was it's still finding you know which which one of these uh, <laughs> you know, international yeah. On, on on these 10 different satellites somewhere had the games and in california we didn't get great satellite reception but if you lived in say the northeast which was the closest to europe you would have access to a lot more games and the first uh colin joe's media Re- award recipient is a guy by the name of jerry trekker who worked for the hartford current for many years and he and he knew everything he would get really he was he, he was you know it could be a pretty gruff guy and he would get really pissed when we kept calling him so what we'd have to do was we'd have to pull straws for the for the editor of us who would have to call him and ask for where can we find you know this this european cup game we wanted to find and we couldn't find it he would say well obviously it's on s123 or something <laughs> Is he any relation to Jim Trekker? Yeah, yeah. Brother. They're yeah. brothers. All right. We can uh, easily find it out by going on the soccer uh, on TV portion of Soccer America. I wanted to ask each of you both about uh, points of emphasis. Paul, you talked about, you know, you're a lawyer and it, and it, it really comes through your writing when you you in particular are somebody. If there's anything going on uh, from a lawsuit standpoint, U.S. soccer and ASL the women, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, you're the guy to read because you seem to have uh, that ability to really dig in and find the, uh, the key points. Is there anything that, that stands out to you over the years? Having gone to law school, when you go to law school, you're trained to what's called issue spot, which is, you know, you'll have a case and they'll, you have to find what's the, what's, what's the, one, the one fact and the one piece of law that's going to decide the case. And that's something that, you know, I've always been very good at. So it helps, you know, me just in terms of my writing and explain stuff. You know, but I think in terms of soccer, which is one of the things that's great about Soccer America, is that Soccer America's 50 years, a lot of the issues that were around then are still here today and reflects the fact that how complex the sport was and in some ways how difficult it was for the sport that um, tried to grow and had to grow quickly when, it, when all these other sports had had 50 to 100 years head start to grow naturally without and without 
other competition. So that I think one of the biggest things that helped us a lot was currently in the last few years, especially after the U.S. failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, everyone immediately said the world was falling apart. And our point was, is, well, it's not as bad as you think it is, but it is complex. And our ability to sort of explain some of the issues and present the issues in more realistic fashion and to start a conversation for that was for us one of the biggest things that allowed us to uh, grow because it came just as we were about to and did start our paywall. So that the last few years, our ability to talk about the issues the Federation has in concrete terms in in our writing and, and, and in the interviews we do with people have been, uh, I think, very important contribution to the game because they said, you know, the issues that soccer had 50 years ago in many ways are still the same today. In terms of uh, helping the game and helping uh, the education side of it, Mike, uh, and, and Paul mentions two, eight, 2018 failure to qualify for the World Cup. Well, player development became like uh, the, the topic of the day, you know, and, and what we have been doing to develop the top players. And, and I know you spend a lot of time, uh, you've coached the youth game, you know, you're, you're heavily involved on that side of it. So you've had a lot of player development articles, coaching education articles. So you've really dived into that uh, side of things. Yeah. I mean, going way back to when I was a little kid um, and started, I started following international soccer. My grandfather would send me clippings from German newspapers and kicker magazine. And, you know, I followed the game very closely and my father uh, got his C license from Detmer Cromer. Um, and then when I got involved with Soccer America, besides having that background um, in, 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 in following the game, you know, I mean, I just come up with a list of people that I got to meet early on to talk about soccer and especially youth soccer, which I was always very interested in. You know, I'm talking about guys like Manny Shellside, Bruce Serena, Ziggy Schmidt, Rob Bradley, Anson Dorans, Tony Chico, Bob Gansler. And, you know, we would go on when I got lucky enough to go on a trip go to final four and you find yourself uh, in a room with one of these guys and you talk about a lot of things and you just, you know, you, I think that really helped me um, kind of get a good overview of player development and, and the, uh, you know, I, when I was coaching and had an issue that I was trying to, you know, figure out the best way to, to solve it, I had the, uh, you know, I was lucky enough, I could call someone like Tony DiCicco and say, hey, I want to do an interview with you on, you know, what's the best way to handle a tryout, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I, you know, that was just a, a fortunate thing that I think I had, uh, or Ziggy Schmidt, I mean, Ziggy Schmidt was such a wonderful person when it came, uh, you know, the, the way he's been described, which is a perfect way to describe him. If you ever run into him and he knows you're interested in soccer, he's going to be a friend and you're going to have a really insightful conversation about the game. And I think that really helped me, um, you know, look at a lot of issues. Yeah. Uh, well, I had both Siggy and, uh, and Tony on the show um, multiple times and you could just tell their, uh, their passion for describing the game. And now fast forward to uh, 2021 and uh, we've both talked to Sasha Sarovsky at Maryland about this uh a full academic year calendar and schedule and, and whether uh, collegiate soccer uh, is still a, a, a worthy development platform. What I, I'm curious for both of you, what do you think uh, the role of college soccer is these days? Mike, you first. I'm glad you mentioned Sasha because uh, I was talking about getting to go to the, you know, college cups, final fours. And I believe it was a tamper one where I got to the hotel late at night 
And the first person I ran into was Sasha, who I can't remember if I met him in person or not, but I knew of him. I must have talked to him on TV. I think he used to help, uh, you know, assist Bob Gansler. And, and we ended up spending the whole evening together, um, you know, talking about every possible soccer thing you could talk about. Um, you know, the college game is college sports is a part of American sports culture. Um, you know, how exactly it's going to evolve as far as, um, you know, its role in pro soccer and the national team, that's always going to be something that's changing perhaps. Um, but it's a, you know, it, it's a, always going to be a big part of the culture. Paul, your son, not in soccer, if I've read it correctly, he's a, he's a baseball player on the collegiate level or was? He, he, yeah, he played college baseball. He graduated two years ago. What I'd say is that so many of the issues that are today, you know, with, with soccer is true with other American sports. So I think one of the things is that one thing that's really clear and, and you really you know, have felt it the last couple of days was a lot of the issues of the transfer stuff of, of a guy like Brian Reynolds, who uh, goes to Roma first full year as a uh, first team pro. But, you know, um, you have a lot of kids now who have turned pro in 15 or 16. These are the national team players who very clearly at a young age have, have decided and have been good enough and are smart enough to recognize the path they're on, um, you know, so that you have what didn't exist before was you only had one path, which was college. Now you have multiple paths and they, and they, uh, um, uh, so that they can, ex they can exist side by side. And I think one of the issues that is going to be important for American soccer going forward is to come to terms with college soccer and the best way for it to grow without being this big factory big pay-to-play factory that, that, that drives everything, meaning, uh, you know, soccer never developed like American sports, where if you were a, you know, a college coach, you know, 50 years ago, you know, you didn't, you didn't have these showcases to go to, you would just recruit locally. What I'd say is so much of the problems that soccer has today is that, is that the local culture never developed strong enough for that to allow coaches to do that. Um, long term, that's something that, you know, college soccer will have to come to terms with, but is, you know, is an opportunity that needs to take place. Paul, you said in one of the articles you wrote, and I think it might have been the one which marked the uh, the 50th anniversary, quote was, soccer will be only as strong as the roots it has put down in local communities. So you were saying that was true when you started this and you still feel it's true today? Yes, that, that, that the lack of root is something that makes it very difficult for the, for the sport to grow, which is why one of the big predicaments is, is that today you have, you know, everyone's involved in a, quote, soccer club, but the soccer club is not, doesn't have the roots in the community that traditionally say a high school would have or a middle school would have or a little league would have. Without that, the sport has really suffered, meaning obviously media is different today than before, but you know, a local newspaper is going to cover high school as its number one sports topic in you know, many areas of the country. You know, if you're on a travel team, they could, they, they could they'd care less. And that's something that, you know, without that soccer has, you know, it's been a big issue. So Mike, what one of the other changes that I think is massive. Journalism in general is now bloggers versus trained writers. And I don't know about you guys, you know, I still have a subscription to Sports Illustrated and have for so long. And one of the major reasons is I, I feel like these, the writers over the years for Sports Illustrated were some of the best writers I, in any medium I've ever read. I really enjoy the uh, well-written piece. That seems to be less, less the need now, I guess would be the 
the way I'd see it. What, what do you I, mean? I would say with the whole blogging phenomenon, one of the big issues is yeah, a lot of people writing before they've ever reported. Um, I'm not saying there aren't good writers out there, but you know, we came from a more traditional journalism background where the the priority is about reporting and being accurate as accurate as possible. Um, you know, whenever I write something, it's double checked by Paul, who's you know probably one of the world's best soccer fact checkers. Um, you know, we're very careful that we uh, even, and if it is an opinion, we we try very hard to make sure it's an opinion that 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 is based on on solid knowledge and, and facts. And um, you know, I, I do think there is a difference between the so-called traditional journalism that feels obligated to, um, you know, not just uh, criticize something because you don't like it. You know, you do have to interject some opinion, and that's become certainly more of the uh, trend as well in, in all kinds of reporting, right, Paul? I mean, anywhere you go. I mean, you, you said before we started, or maybe it was in the midst of the interview, you know, the uh, Morning Joe, MSNBC. There's a lot of opinion there. There's a lot of opinion CNN. There's a lot of opinion on Fox, and we're not necessarily just getting the news anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, is true. At the same time, you know, that's where one thing that's helped us is, uh, you know, we have credibility because we try to be, and, and I believe we are pretty accurate most of the time. And that's something that, you know, if you lose it, you can't get it back. It also goes to the fact that in, in what we do is, is very hard in the sense that, you know, soccer has so many different areas, you know, so that, you know, it's easy to be wrong. You know, you, can, you might know the national team or MLS, but you might not know the women's national team or some, you know, uh, youth sphere, so that it's it's hard to, you know, it's hard for us, but at the same time, you know, we try to be accurate. And that's why one of the things that we do, I think, very well, just like you have a talk show where you have guys on who bring their expertise and their knowledge of soccer and you bring that out. We do that in a different medium, which is still it's not print, but it's written form where, um, you know, a lot of the interviews that say Mike does are so important because we get those experts to talk about how they view the current state of soccer in this country. And we view those experts as, as the most knowledgeable people so that they add a voice and an analysis that is very important. Yeah, those Q&As are, uh, are fantastic. And it, in, in that respect, Mike, it's their opinion, not necessarily yours. You might be guiding them with your questions, but it's, it's coming from them and not you in particular. Yeah, I mean, if someone says something that I know is not, true and and not that that happens very often but i'm not going to give a stage to someone who's saying something that's that's ridiculous and and you know a lot uh, but in, but generally speaking um we try very hard uh to get to get sources from various levels of the game and both genders and and, and pro and college and you know we we we're doing what a media i believe is supposed to do is is we're we're, we're linking um, different parts of the of the soccer community and and giving people a chance to hear those voices. And Paul mentioned earlier the importance of the U.S. men's national team qualifying in 1990, and that how sort of that was a, a big moment for Soccer America and kind of jump-starting it a bit more. What role has the success of the women played in your coverage of the women? Has that also been a jolt? Well, the I mean, one of the things that I'm proud of is that when I look through all the back issues, is our women's coverage I believe has been the most extensive of any media 
uh, in America for soccer. You know, we were Ridge Mahoney from Soccer America and Roscoe Nance, I believe, from USA Today were the only people who staffed the first uh, Women's World Cup. Um, but I found women's coverage in our first year of, of Soccer America um, when it was called Soccer West and, and so on. Um, you know, it, it's the women's game and the girls game is, um, is phenomenal in, in how it grew. Um, the challenge, I think, in some ways is what kind of women's soccer fandom is there outside of the national team. And, and that's something that's evolving right now with, uh, with the NWSL and, and women going abroad. All right, guys. Well, uh, Mike Wataya and uh, Paul Kennedy with Soccer America. Paul, I'm going to give you the last word uh, and I'm going to pull out another thing that I think you um, have written recently regarding the 50th anniversary. You said the greatest feat is that Soccer America remains as relevant today as it was back in the early days. Can you uh, explain? I think one thing I'm, I'm proud of is, is that today we have, a, you know, I feel that we have an important voice to contribute to the game and, and people listen to us, which obviously is a reflection of, of the work that Mike does and Paul Gardner does and, and um, the other writers do and I do. And it goes to the fact that, you know, even, you know, at the end of the day, we're still relatively small, but Soccer America has a voice in this sport that other single sport publications really don't anymore in other sports. And so that, that makes me very proud that uh, we're still there and, and, and uh, important. I think it reflects the size of the sport, which is still relatively small, but it goes to the fact that we've been passionate and we've been around so long and we care and we try to uh, present, present what we think is important and is um, accurate and needs to be advocated.